Hello, Legends. Before we get into the episode, I just want to quickly tell you about a brand new show that I have just released. It's called Crime at Bedtime. And as the name suggests, it's been designed with those in mind who like to go to sleep at night listening to a fascinating true crime story. We'll release a brand new episode every single Monday, but right now there is a stack of episodes for you to binge straight away. So go check it out. It's called Crime at Bedtime. It's available wherever you get your podcasts from. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I think uh, more than any of the shows that you've done, this one angered me and frustrated me more than anyone I've ever heard. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. We've just wrapped up the story of Temujin Kenzu. In 1986, known as Fred Freeman, he was arrested, tried, and convicted of the murder of Scott Macklem, a crime that was committed over 400 miles away from where he was and where numerous eyewitnesses placed him. As always, at the end of one of these cases, I like to sit down with the man they call the voice of reason. He is Michael Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers in Chicago, Illinois, a man with decades of trial experience as a defence attorney and someone who has very strong opinions on this case. Wow, this is a, this is a crazy one. I mean, as as we always do, shall we start uh, uh, with your thoughts on uh, on the story uh, and the case of Temujin Kenzu, once known as Fred Freeman? Sure. I think uh, more than any of the shows that you've done, this one angered me and frustrated me more than anyone I've ever heard, just because the absurdity of the lack of evidence and the absurdity of the purported evidence. Uh, what I'm what I'm really shocked at is the fact that nobody. No court has done anything about it, uh, despite the fine work of the Innocence Project. That's probably what's most even maddening about it all. And I, and I think it's also very disheartening for other men and women in a similar situation who don't have the support that he's got because he has literally got so many people behind him. You know, he's got the Innocence Project. He's got one of Muhammad Ali's daughters is a spokesperson for him. And, you know, he's got all this backing and and everything that goes with it and the power that comes with that. And still this man, 37 years later, is still incarcerated for this crime. It's it's disheartening. Yeah, really absolutely incredible. And, yeah, the funny thing was before... I knew that you'd been talking to the Innocent Project lawyers about this case. I'd asked you, are they going to take this one on? Because <laughs> yeah. I thought, 
well, this is just a dead bang winner. And you're like, no, they've been on it for like a decade. It's mind blowing that all these years later with all that's come out and all that we know now that this has still not got through to someone to say, hey, what's going on? This guy needs to be out. And, you know, we come back to possibly, you know, I know I spoke to the, the guy from the Michigan Innocence Clinic um, and he was stating that, you know, he thinks it's, it's more about, you know, people just not wanting to admit they got it wrong. Yeah, I think that happens a lot where the government becomes so entrenched in trying to defend what they've done rather than look for justice. And that's what is really pathetic in my view, because, you know, by this time, decades later, there's so many new eyeballs on the case. So whatever protection these prosecutors felt like they needed or the judge needed back in the day, that should be out the window. You know, all sorts of new sets of eyes have looked at this and someone has to do the right thing. So, so let's look at this case. So he's, you know, he's a gentleman that's over 400 miles away from a murder that's taken place and all of a sudden becomes suspect number one because apparently while questioning the girlfriend of the, the deceased, her sister goes, oh, you know, you were dating that one guy and they go, tell me about that one guy. Tell me about that person. Who's that person? I mean, well, okay, fair enough. Tell me about this person. Who is he? As soon as they find out that he lives 400 miles away, I'd be like, okay, well, it's not him. We need to look into who else it could be. Yeah, at every step, they clung to the idea of, okay, well, what can we get? What can we gather to try to make this happen, to try to fit this square peg in a round hole, rather than looking at the evidence and saying, look, it doesn't go that direction. Now we've got this piece of evidence. we got that piece of evidence. Clearly, it's, it's not a case that can be supported. And I think we should start by talking about one important concept in our system, which, you know, your listeners may not, may not be familiar with. And, you know, some people here aren't even familiar with, you know, the job of the prosecutor at the state level and the federal level isn't simply to get a conviction to win the case. They actually have in our system what's supposed to be a higher calling, which is supposed to be justice, yeah. meaning you don't charge a case that you can't in good faith um, say that it could be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, and you don't continue to prosecute a case when evidence is brought to your attention that clearly shows to you that you're not bringing the action in good faith, that it can't be uh, proven beyond guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So prosecutors in our system have have that duty. And so it's not just about winning the case. It, that they have actually other duties within our system, and they clearly failed in this case. You've got to also look at the fact that in this situation, the the victim who was the son of a mayor. So again, you get that word pressure that uh, that comes into it, a pressure to get a result, especially when it's so high profile and it's the son of a, a high profile figure. You know, it's it's that thing where it's like we need to we need to get a result here. We need to get so it's it's less it comes less about finding who done it and more about finding someone. It does sound like it was a factor that this is a prominent person, this is a prominent politician, we need to, you know, cinch up this case, you know, and again, of course, no one is well served by person uh, getting away with a murder and the wrong person being prosecuted for murder. No one gains from that. Um, I guess the law enforcement could trumpet the victory that we got somebody, but it, ultimately that helps nobody. So well, let's start by, you know, where this all begins, which is, you know, the detective in this, Detective Bounds, who we know for a fact, it's, it's online, all the details are there, that he at one stage loses his job with the police force because he's involved in illicit gambling. He's been seen hanging around with known members of organised crime. So he's literally suspended from his job without pay to start with and then eventually loses his job. 
the department essentially fired him um, after he got caught up in a Michigan State Police undercover investigation, essentially participating in the illegal gambling, hanging out with uh, known members of the mafia. Yeah, he was, uh, I guess we call them thugs with badges. He then gets back on the force, and not only does he get back on the force, one of his first jobs that he gets once back on the force is investigating this crime. I mean, how can a, a police officer go from being disgraced, from hanging out with, you know, known criminals and being involved in things like, you know, illicit gambling? How do, how do they get back on the force? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, there's often years of litigation and sometimes union hearings about officers who are trying to be removed by a police force. And obviously the officer and his counsel is going to fight it very hard. Um, and let's keep in mind, these these towns in Upper Michigan, these are not big towns. These are small towns. Mm. So it's not as if law enforcement has these giant police forces up there with lots and lots of detectives. So when he gets put back in the rotation, so to speak, uh, there may not be 10 other guys to say, hey, go do this case. But certainly when you have that kind of baggage and you engage in that type of conduct, immediately your investigation is sort of suspect and lacks credibility. Nonetheless, he, he is in charge of this. We know that, that how he comes across Timogen's case. You know, he, Timogen is, is arrested with, very, well, no evidence, basically, that he was even there. He then gets given this public defender. What I didn't know for the listeners is that this scumbag had just had a cocaine conviction. He was a crackhead. He was on probation for cocaine use, right in front of the police, by the way, snorting it in a park. His probation oversight officer was my judge. His best buddy was John Bounds. In fact, they only went to high school together. He was John Bounds' attorney on his corruption charges. Not only he was removed from the office that he was working, he was a former prosecutor, but was removed from the prosecutor's office, um, sets up a little practice himself and starts doing some some work as a public defender. Known drug uh, addiction, He's been in trouble with the the law himself for his his drug habits, but now he's defending a gentleman who's up for for murder. Yeah, what what a cast of characters! <laughs> Obviously, he got an attorney who didn't seem to have a lot of interest in finding out the truth, to running out all the ground balls, so to speak, to do all the things you need to do to prepare for trial. And of course, as you pointed out, he had a conflict of interest, right? Didn't he have a representation of the detective? Yeah, he well, he helped that detective get back on the force with that case we spoke about previously. And- yeah, which is crazy. I mean, if you formally represented the detective, um, there is certainly at least under our ethical rules a potential conflict of interest because, and, and maybe an actual conflict of interest because you're not able to fully and effectively cross-examine the detective, but you can't bring out all that stuff about him. He's your former client. So you you can't be expected to vigorously cross-examine him about all the bad things he's done because he is your former client. So there, there's a problem right there. And that should have been that in itself, a great appellate issue. And I'm sure that's one thing the Innocence Project has raised repeatedly. So what about his his drug taking? Because I have heard that just because he had a drug issue does not mean that um, there was any grounds for, for Mr. Kenzu to go and say, hey, you know, poor assistance to counsel, this guy was on drugs. Well, you'd need more proof than that. Simply the fact that the guy had a drug problem at some point in time, you'd actually have to show that his representation fell below the standard, which in our system is a pretty low standard 
for effective assistance of counsel, meaning if you're trying to prove ineffective assistance of counsel, you have to show that your attorney's performance fell below a standard of reasonableness. You can't simply say he was afflicted with some condition. You have to show how it mattered and point to specific errors that are tied to the substance abuse, which I'm not sure if they had that level of information to say that he's impaired, you know, actually during the trial proceedings. He, he would probably need that type of evidence to get it overturned on that basis alone. So the trial itself was, uh, by all accounts, just an absolute, you know, shit show. <laughs> Excuse my language. I mean... I like that term. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. you use that too. Appreciate it. Uh, so, for instance, they have a table laid out in front of the prosecutor, um, which is full of weapons. It was orchestrated from the very beginning just to make a man that was sitting in front of this jury look like he had supernatural capabilities. They, they did things like put guns on the table on the prosecution side, uh, all lined up, and never mentioned who owned them or where the guns came from or how they were tied to the case. Yeah, absolutely absurd. I mean, that would literally never happen. I mean, so, and the fact that the attorney made no objection to that apparently, and the fact they were allowed to just have prejudicial evidence sitting out there, which is not even evidence, just prejudicial items sitting there in front of the jury. I mean, in our in our cases here, we often battle over, you know, to what extent the prosecution can show a weapon to the jury, you know, under what circumstances, for how long, all that kind of stuff. So to think that in this case, they're just going to wheel out a barrel of weapons and put them out there <laughs> for the jury to look at and be prejudiced by is ridiculous. And again, you know, even if the attorney made no objection to it, the judge has say, an important yeah. job here. Yeah. It's his job that you get a fair trial. So they, they have to be proactive and you can't let those things happen if you're a judge. So it's very troublesome from the judicial standpoint in this case that that guy let this just go on and and didn't seem to care. Obviously, you know, the defence does have a defence. They have multiple people who come to the courtroom to give evidence to say that, you know, Temujin Kenzu was in the, the place he was in over 400 miles away from where this crime happened at 11.40. The murder happened at 9am, you know, to get from, from Port Huron all the way to where he was was like, a, you know, 10, 15-hour drive. So it's just physically not possible for him to have got there. So they have these witnesses and they come up and they say, no, he was there, saw him, even people that didn't like him. These weren't mates of his. Yeah, and I think that, I think that was a great point you made in, in one of the episodes. You brought that out that, you know, in a typical case, you know, the alibi witness is often their credibility is attacked because they're compromised. You know, mm. it might be a brother, a sister, a mother, a girlfriend, a wife, whatever. But it, like, as you pointed out very appropriately, in this case, it's the opposite. These people didn't like him. They had no bias. They didn't necessarily want to testify in his favor, but they're honest people and, you know, obviously went to bat for him. So it's shocking with that level of eyewitness testimony that they still would ignore it. I think we need to talk about the witness that wasn't called, you know, the girlfriend, which is a killer to the case. Totally. You know? the, the morning of, the, the, the morning of the when this happened, he woke up in the house next to the girlfriend. They got ready together all through the morning and she was never called to testify at all. So did you att attend much of Temujin's trial? No, none of it. I was not called for it. That's no. yeah, it's just crazy that you were never that you were never called. No, I, right, I wasn't. Yeah, and that that alone could form the basis for ineffective assistance of counsel claim. You know, a lot of times in our system, 
where the attorney knows of the identity of a witness that would be favorable to the to the defense to the accused and doesn't call them or make efforts to call them uh particularly when you can support it by affidavit or declaration that this is what i would have said that oftentimes is grounds for overturning a conviction so it's sad that that alone didn't result in the overturning of the conviction uh particularly because you coupled it with about 15 other errors so but that was a real strategic blunder. And it it just seemed like, number one, the attorney didn't care, didn't make any effort to do his job, and maybe was compromised from what you said because of his relationships and his uh, substance abuses. Uh, But that alone would be a strong basis to try to get this thing overturned. And not only that, we also know that, you know, prior to him being at home with his partner, I mean, we we know that back in his day, he was a bit of a womanizer and he was sort of seeing other people at the same time. He was with another lady hours before that, into the early hours of the morning, in a car park. He's got all these witnesses. He got a friend who came over and helped him jumpstart his car. He was at a restaurant. He went and saw the person in the restaurant who gave them some food. So it was physically impossible, you know, there was this the, for him to be there doing this crime. So because she wasn't called, obviously, the, our, the, the main girlfriend that was with him at 9am in the morning when this murder happened, we don't have that. So we just have the time in between, which, again, impossible for him to, to be there. So what does the prosecution do? They come up with a theory. And the theory is, I think, probably the most ludicrous part of this whole thing is that he hires a plane to fly from where he is to Port Huron, commits this crime, flies back in order to be back in his hometown in time. This is a guy who couldn't afford to pay his rent, but he's chartered a, a, a plane. There's no records of any planes being chartered. There's no even records of anyone inquiring about chartering a plane or, or anything like that. They bring in a, an expert pilot, describes how it could happen. I mean, it's it's absurd. I know, and and that's troubling on various levels. Number one, what judge in the United States, federal, state, I don't care what court they're overseeing, a traffic ticket court, would allow the testimony of that witness and, more importantly, would allow the government to present evidence of that theory, how the crime was occurred, when there's nothing to support it. So an enormous failure on the part of the judge, absolutely ridiculous that he would let that in when there's no evidence, no good faith theory to support that. And number two, we also have to blame the prosecution. You know, they essentially made up a legal theory, factual legal theory, and then presented it to a jury. They absolutely, um, you know, didn't do their job and violated their duties to the court and to the public by doing that because there was nothing, no good faith basis to support that. And uh, obviously the, 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 we then find out the expert witness, the pilot is also the private pilot of the prosecutor to top everything off. Yeah, and, and again, <laughs> not only was he compromised from a bias standpoint. And I don't know, I don't know that his bias was disclosed. It probably wasn't, which first of all, that's error alone that they didn't disclose the relationship between the prosecutor and the pilot. And then his testimony is absolutely irrelevant. Okay. He's not called as an expert to say, this is what happened. He's speculating about something that's theoretically possible with no basis in fact or evidence to give that opinion. So again, fault the prosecutor, for allowing that to be put in. They put it in themselves. They chose that and fault the judge for allowing that to be heard. Absolutely ridiculous on both levels. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. 
they supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So they're, own, they're really their only... Uh, evidence, if you can call it that, is a supposed witness who spots, um, he says he spots Temujin Kenzu driving out. It didn't see him commit any crime. He hears a gunshot and then a few minutes later sees a car slowly driving out uh, of the, the car park. He spots him for maybe five seconds. He's wearing a hat down low over his face. He's wearing a jacket with a collar up. So he literally couldn't be covering his face anymore unless he was wearing a balaclava. But yet... This guy manages to pick out Temujin Kenzu out of a police lineup and he says he picks him. Well, I mean, Temujin says he knows he picks him because he said, well, I know that guy and I know that guy. Apparently two of the guys in the lineup were police officers. And I don't mean to laugh, but it is just so ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, where do you start with that one? I mean, first of all, testifies about somebody that is not the defendant, right? And who couldn't possibly be the defendant. And then... They change his testimony essentially and his identification to try to fit somehow using with the hypnosis. But <laughs> oh my god! And yeah, I mean it, it's just level after level. But that person, first of all, his, his initial identification had nothing to do with this defendant. The hypnosis, any court in this country would say that's that's not going to be allowed. Um, that 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 testimony after hypnosis is not going to be allowed. Um, so I, I don't know even where you start, but that alone is like five errors that, you know, give bases for this case to be overturned. It's just that is ridiculous um, to to have a witness like that and to, to sort of coach him and move him to something that allegedly supports the government theory, which still doesn't really still doesn't support it anyways. But to put that kind of testimony on again, you got to blame the prosecution team. Have you have you tried to get? 
anybody from the prosecution team or from that office to speak to you? The, the terrifying thing is, uh, Mr. Leonard, is that that prosecutor went to, on to become a federal judge um, and spent many, many, many years. In fact, he's apparently just announced his retirement as a federal judge. Um, so he's not going to speak whatsoever. And apparently no one, you, and no one from government, no one from anywhere, no matter how many times they've been requested, will talk about this case for obvious reasons because it's f-ing ludicrous. Yeah, and, and think about as that case went up through the system on appeal and if this judge was someone who was well-respected and apparently was since he got a federal judgeship so at some at some point, Yeah, uh, think of the institutional opposition to saying that this prosecutor did something wrong, right? So that is really troubling. Who cares what his level was or how good he is or the public perceives him to be? He needs to be taken to task for his work on this case, and everyone needs to know about it. And hopefully uh, I'm not in federal court in front of him before he does retire. <laughs> can you hold this? Can you yeah, hold this episode hold, back until, until you get announcement to his retirement until party? Until he's had his retirement party, absolutely. And talking about the judge in, in this particular court situation, as we said multiple times, he's failed his job for making sure that this trial is fair. Um, and we find out that the prosecutor had helped that judge on a number of occasions get out with, of traffic offences. Some of, uh, I don't know the full details of them, but I've been told it could have been a drinking, drink driving situation or something like that. But he's helped him essentially get out out of certain charges himself. Yeah, another obvious conflict of interest that if that was disclosed, certainly would have been the basis to recuse that judge and have him have nothing to do with that trial whatsoever. Um, so again, another failure by the prosecutor to disclose that conflict. And the judge had a duty to disclose the conflict as well. The parties, the defendant and his counsel could have waived the conflict if they had known about it. They could have said, oh, judge, you know, we're not troubled by that conflict. We, you don't need to recuse yourself, but they need to know about it. And certainly this defendant would have said, no way, I'm not going forward with this guy. And then we come to the final thing, which is, you know, and I've made my um, opinions on jury systems well and truly known. And, you know, this is a classic example of where a jury can horribly, I'm I'm afraid, horribly fail. And this is one of those occasions where it it has failed tremendously. I mean, look, I I wasn't in there. I wasn't in the courtroom. I didn't hear it all going on. But you you would hope that you would listen to this and go, well, this is insanity. There's no way this guy's killed this person. This is not the person. Yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to get my arms around that one. How, you know, despite all these errors, the ridiculous theory upon which the case was founded, all the eyewitness testimony that any reasonable jury would have found this guy guilty is really troubling. And it is, it is uh, an indictment of our system. Uh, Fortunately that doesn't happen all the time, but it happens too much. And it happened in this case, that's for sure. What was the linchpin for that juror in terms of why they possibly as a group collectively believe that the government had met its burden beyond a reasonable doubt? The witness basically was, he said to me that this witness who said he saw Temujin Kenzu in the car was their deciding factor as to his guilt. They, he said that they, a number of them had their biggest issue was the apparent, you know, him saying that he's, he could tell who he was in that in that short amount of time. So he tells me that they requested through the, through to the judge to say, hey, look, we're having a, an issue with this whole picking someone out with the car driving past, could you or couldn't you do it? They requested to be placed on a bus, taken to the location and have almost like a reenactment of have someone drive past in a car at that speed and then do their own lineup and see if they could actually 
legitimately pick someone, but they got a response saying not happening. Yeah, I mean, I don't think most judges would do that, especially at that stage, not at the deliberation stage. So if that request had been made by, say, defense counsel during the trial or prior to trial, that might have happened. Right. Although in this courtroom, it sounds like it wouldn't have. But once the jury is already deliberating, that's not going to happen. Sure. And, and the reason why is that would essentially be evidence that would be introduced during the case. You're not going to stop deliberations and say, let's go see more evidence. Right. Okay. Um, so. There are occasions where uh, a jury is taken out to the scene to go walk the scene, you know, go into a house where there was murder or whatever. Um, but typically they're not going to do reenactments. If, if they had an expert witness um, called by the defense and they wanted to do some reenactment, they, they wouldn't likely take them to the scene. The expert would do some sort of reenactment, maybe be videoed, maybe he'd just testify about it, and that's how it would come in. But I'm not surprised in the middle of deliberations they weren't going to do that. However, what that underscores, if the jury felt that they needed that, obviously the government had not met its burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So you wonder how, if they needed to do that, they didn't grasp the concept that, hey, that must mean the government has failed to prove him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. That's what's kind of troublesome that they didn't seem to understand the burden of proof. So then the other thing is that I'm told by this juror that they struggled. They struggled to come to a unanimous decision as to his guilt and they went back and said, look, we're struggling with this. And apparently they were told, you cannot be a hung jury, you must come to a decision. Well, I'd, I'd like to read the the transcript on that part, you know, because that situation happens a lot where a jury could be deliberating anywhere from just a couple hours to a couple of days. And they often report back to the court and say, you know, we're deadlocked. We can't reach agreement on the entire case. Sometimes it's just a count. And the, the appropriate thing to do is for the judge to say, uh, at first, to say, you know, you should continue to deliberate, you know, don't compromise your beliefs, but, you know, deliberate in good faith. You know, something along those lines, there's a standard instruction to give. However, they, they're never going to tell them ever that you can't have a hung jury, okay? If the judge did do that, clearly that's error it's reversible. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if he actually said those words, so they may have misunderstood it, but I'd love to see what the transcript says. However, then what would typically happen, the jury being properly instructed would continue to deliberate for some period of time. If they then reported back to the court, we're deadlocked and the court's most likely going to just declare a mistrial at that point. Um, and sometimes it's not a mistrial on the whole case because sometimes the jury says we're deadlocked on count four or something like that. And then the common thing would be to take the verdict as to the other counts and mistry the count that they're hung on. So I'd really like to see what he said. Is the Innocence Project, did they support that, that he had said that? Uh, I'm not, well, see, uh, this jury is the first time this jury has spoken to anyone at all. So th them finding out all this information, they found, they found that out for the very first time. Good work. That's oh, good work. And did you probe him at all? Like, hey, did you find believable this theory that he flew there? I said, what about this pilot situation, you know, with him flying there and what were your thoughts on on that whole story? Basically, everything he said to me, in my mind, goes, okay, so you didn't think he was guilty. And he didn't. And he yeah. said he was the one of the ones that was struggling with it. But what it comes down to, again, my issue with the jury situation is they got to a point where there was more people who said guilty than innocent and the innocent people just went, all right, well, we'll just go with you guys. Well, there's no doubt that sometimes juries get worn down. I mean, you, you see it happen a lot where, uh, especially when they're struggling for a period of days, sometimes it's longer. Yeah. And I think and they want to go home to their lives. That, 
Yeah, of course. And they they compromise and they sacrifice their their truly held beliefs because they want to get the hell out of there. And unfortunately, they're putting their life and their family ahead of someone who they, they don't know or care about. And it's it's alleged to be a horrible murder in their small town. And they don't want to be the people who lets this person go. So there are, there are a lot of pressures in our system that can make that happen. So you can you can see why and how it would happen. But it's just troubling when you see it so explicitly like this case. So obviously convicted, as we know, gets his sentence. Um, a lot of these cases that we discuss happened many, many years ago. And as you say, you know, times have changed now. You know, we've moved on from those things. Yes, there were major errors back in the day and, and we're, you know, these things have been fixed and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But we have to look at the, ca- the, the fact that this has gone through so many appeal processes. It's gone in front, in front of three governors. He's still in prison. I'd like to know from an insider perspective, you know, what sort of reputation and power the judge has from that case and whether that's a factor because it just doesn't seem to add up why they would continue when anybody, you know, from America to Australia to Timbuktu can see that this is a miscarriage of justice. I I don't get it. You got to believe that, you know, there's something going on behind the scenes. Maybe this judge's poll or power or reputation. I I don't know. You know, I think it is sometimes harder to get someone released the more the time goes by because then it looks so egregious, right? And and there's so many people have to answer for it, which which is very easy to just put it back in the back put it back into the drawer and, and no one sort of hears about it. But I think you're putting a huge light on this one. So let's hope it goes somewhere. As always, a huge thank you to Michael Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers in Chicago, Illinois, for giving up his valuable time to talk to us uh, on our cases. He will do that again, of course, on our next one, which will be, if you're listening to this as the episode drops, uh, it'll be a week away because we're taking a week off. Um, So, But don't panic because I'm not leaving you high and dry with nothing. We've got a brand new show launching next week on Monday called Wanted. Uh, So make sure next week you go check out Wanted and we'll be back in a week's time. If you're listening to this at another stage later down the track, ignore everything I just said and just move on to the next episode. Oh, and listen to Wanted because that's out for you as well.